That was good. All the wires very short. <laughs> we good? Yeah. Okay. So the trap has been laid, and Esther invited Haman to this party. They show up at the first dinner party, and really nobody has a clue why they're there except for Esther. She has this all figured out, as we learned. She's uh, firing many cylinders at the same time and very, very carefully creating the perfect environment to be able to ensure that she has success. But uh, Haman, Ahasuerosh, they have really no idea of why they're there. Esther was somewhat concerned that Haman would try to disappear. In fact, Ahasuerus was concerned of the same thing. And that's why, as we learned in our previous class, it says, The king said, make Haman go really fast. The Sharebina says, Ahasuerus was a doting husband suddenly. He didn't want Esther to be left waiting. Megillus' Sodom says that Haman might have left. And the king was concerned about Haman doing his own thing. And he said, if I'm going, you're going, everything the queen says shall be done. Which brings us to today's class. Pedekei Posuk Vov. The fifth chapter, the sixth verse. Vayoymer HaMelech LaEster. The king says to his wife, to the queen Esther. Bemishte hayayin in the meal, in the feast of wine. Ma she'elosech. What is your request? V'yinosen loch. And I will give it to you. It will be given to you. Ma bakoshech. Ma bakoshosech. What is... Your ask, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you looking for? And ad chatzihamalchus If it's up to half the kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled, it shall be done. So the first thing that I want to talk about is mishte hayayin. That's where this is, the setting. Let's first let's fill in the the atmosphere, and then we'll get into the details. Why does the Megillah emphasize mishte hayayin? There are those who maintain that the word mishte in and of itself already means yayin. Mishte v'simcha. It's, if it's a mishte, there's going to be wine. Uh, lots of wine. The, there's no such thing as a mishte without wine. So why is there an emphasis on mishte hayayin? Why do we have this idea that, that the meal was not just a meal, it was not just a party, it was, it was, it was drinks? We know it's a mishte, it's drinks. No, it's mishte hayayin. It's the feast of wine. The feast at which wine was being given. So on a, on a very simple, or literal level, Esther was trying to make Ahasuerus feel good. Because that's the kind of guy he is. Well, he's going to feel really good, and he has lots to drink. Hopefully she'll be able to get her way. Now, of course, Esther is playing some kind of Russian roulette here, because Ahasuerus, when he has too much to drink, sometimes it might go the other way. The last time he had too much to drink, that's when Vashti got killed. That's true, but Esther figures here she's, she's here, she's going to control the situation. Over there, Vashti wasn't there and he made ridiculous requests, so Esther is going to make sure that he drinks and he's happy and try to get him into the right frame of mind so that she's ready to pull the trigger and make the request at the right time. This is on a very, very simple level. 
The Avud Raham emphasizes that the miracle of Purim occurred through wine, and therefore it's customary to observe the festival of Purim with wine. So there's this emphasis on wine. But it doesn't really answer the question. Why? Why was there such an emphasis on wine? Why does the Megillah have to point out that it's mishte hayayin and in that way leave us with this uh, residual aftertaste of wine that spills over into the festivities of Purim so many thousands of years later? So the Rebbe once suggested the following. Wine is a beverage of royalty that invariably gladdens. Very few people drink wine and get unhappy. Wine makes you happy. Kind of, you know, the sorrows kind of fade into the background. The anxieties become a little less intense. People, things that tend to get in the way of people's happiness are released with the wine. The wine releases its chemicals, its endorphins, and people relax and people are happier. But in order to get the wine out of the grape, what has to happen? You have to press the wine. More like crush the wine. You have to press the grapes, squeeze the grapes. You get to get the squeeze on. And after you get the squeeze on, then the grapes can have, give their juice, and their juice invariably ferments and turns into wine. So here was the Rebbe's suggestion. The entire story of Purim is one of a great squeeze. The Jewish people were put between the crosshairs of Haman and his planned genocide. How did they respond? They responded not by giving up or abandoning their faith. They responded with a resurgence of faith. They responded with, in a certain sense, a resuscitation of the dormant love and loyalty they felt for Hashem that got left at the door when they entered the party. The great big party, the Jewish vessels of the Beis HaMikdash on Shabbat where non-kosher food was being served and consumed, where immorality was rife and rampant, they kind of parked their loyalty to Judaism at the door, and they got into the party, which was a lot of wine. So what happened? This is, this is a spiritual reason that things began to go south for the Jewish people, and it culminates with this terrible decree. And the question, of course, is how will we respond? It has been said that none of us ever get to choose our circumstances. But we must choose the way we respond. Here was the Jewish people being squeezed. Squeezed to the nth degree. Sque squeezed to the point of suffocation. We weren't supposed to be anymore. And many people faced with circumstances like this could simply throw in the towel and give up. Become despondent and depressed. There really was no hope. There was no fathomable way out of this. Once the king issues a decree, the decree is done, Haman is the prime minister, the fact that the queen is Jewish doesn't really offer much comfort because the last queen ended up hanging from the gallows for the simple sin of refusing to show up and entertain the male audience in a state of disrobement. So you can't really place much faith in the queen. What way out was there? There wasn't. How do we respond? Kimu v'kiblu ha'yehudim. We responded with an incredible re-embracing of Yiddishkeit. This is like wine. There's an interesting corollary here between the story of Purim and the story of Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. Where Hanukkah, we were in Eretz Yisrael, we were crushed spiritually. On Purim, we were outside of Eretz Yisrael, but we were, they tried to crush us materially. 
And in both cases, there's a, a liquid there's a, there's a, that comes from a fruit. One of the fruits that Eretz Yisrael is praised with. On Hanukkah, it's olives and olive oil. The celebration of Hanukkah is all about oil. On Purim, it's grapes, and the celebration is all about wine. Mm-hmm. And the message for us that Rebbe suggested is how do we respond to the squeeze? And the big difference between the squeezing or crushing of olives and the squeezing of grapes is you crush olives, you press grapes. You don't need that much of a crush, so to speak. To make oil come out, which is a source of actual energy, you really, really have to give it all you got or lose everything. When it comes to wine, you know, it's a little press. It's good enough. So we hope that Hashem won't press us too hard. We don't want to be crushed. <laughs> we don't, we're not looking for the olive paradigm. But the hope and, our, and a prayer for us is that we should learn the lesson of Purim, that when the squeeze is on, understand that the squeeze is a good thing. The pressure can bring forth the wine. And that will ultimately bring gladness and joy. You know that when there's no effort, when there's, uh, for lack of better terminology, no skin in the game, there isn't much joy either. When you have to really invest all your koyach, you have to work hard to make something happen, you've, you've, you take pride in the accomplishment. That's, what, that's where joy comes from. And, and people's most joyous moments come when they put so much effort in and so much toil and you finally get to reap the, 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 the results. You get to see the, the produce grow and blossom. That's when it gives a sense of, of real joy. There's an interesting sikh uh, from the Rebbe about the difference between fruit and between grain. On one hand, grain, you know, the farmer, when he has a harvest, he's joyous. But then there's a different kind of joy when it comes to the concept of fruit. And the Rebbe emphasized that this world is not just called a, f- a sada, it's not just called a field, it's called a garden, God's garden. And the Rebbe said when it comes to produce or grain, sometimes it could take as little as 52 days from the seed dissolving to maturation, or at least from when we begin to see blossoming to maturation. When it comes to fruit, it's not like that at all. There are some trees, the Gemara tells us, that don't really reach maturation and the ability to produce fruit for seven decades, 70 years. So the joy that's experienced by the plantation owner with his orchards is far greater than the joy experienced than the person who oversees fields. And that's because there's less effort. The more effort we put in, the greater the squeeze, the greater the joy that follows. So here we are in our vineyard, if you will, right? And we are like the vine of Hashem, as David Melch metaphorizes in the book of Psalms. And our job is to understand and know that when sometimes things are not exactly as we like them to be, we feel a little bit of pressure, we feel the squeeze, to make sure that the joyous effects of wine are being made possible by this, not chas v'sholem, a reason for us to give up or become despondent. So that's a little bit of a general thing. That's that's like a comment on When does this all happen? In the Mishtahayayin. That's the theme of Purim. So the king says in the theme of Purim, I should also point out to you that according to the Mesorah, at the end of verse 6, we are exactly halfway through the Megillah in Psukim, in verses. In verses. So this is the midway point. Now the, the big miracle doesn't happen until Achashverosh wakes up in the middle of the night, and that's when you're supposed to raise your voice. As the Maharil writes, we'll get to that a little later on. 
But here is already the midway point. We're reaching the climax. All of the tsaras, all the difficulty is already in place. It's Esther's turn to make a change. And so, right in the middle of the squeeze, the king turns to her. Now it's not Esther asking. Now it's the king asking. Oh, there's been a shift here. The king says, what do you want, Esther? What are you asking for? What's your request? You say it, I'll do it. Up to half the kingdom is yours. So at this point, Esther, what should she have said? You have the king exactly what you wanted him. Okay, he, here he is, drinking wine. Haman is present. He can't make any trouble. Pull the trigger. No trigger. Nothing doing. Let's go to verse 7 before we go, to, and verse 8 before we go back to verse 6. Just so we have the whole story for today's class in place. Today's piece of the story. Vatan Esther, Esther responds, Vatoymer, she says, She'elosi, ubakashosi, you want to know my request? You want to know what my petition is? If I have found favor in the king's eyes. Only if it's good. Only if the king feels good about this. Otherwise, I'm not asking. But if that's the case, the king and Haman should come back to yet another feast that I'm going to make for them. Tomorrow, I will do the king's bidding. King's bidding. So Al Sheikh says, What's the king's bidding? The king's bidding. He's going to answer your question. He says, What are you asking for? Tomorrow I'll do his bidding. Rashi, very interestingly, says, This that you have asked, says Rashi, All the days you've been asking and asking, Tell me, who is your nation? What is your background? What's your ethnicity? Couldn't figure it out. Where were you born from? And Esther refused to say. She said, tomorrow I'm going to tell you the big secret. So this is really interesting because what the Alshech says, and many Mepharshim say this, is intuitive. It's intuitive. Like Esther, Esther was, she wanted something. She asked for something. King said, what do you want? Tomorrow you come, I'll tell you what you want. Why, why, why does Rashi, which is supposed to be the Pshut Mikra, opt for a totally different storyline? Tomorrow I'll tell you what the question you've always been asking. So on a very simple level, I think the reason is because it says, I'll do the king's bidding. This was not really the king's bidding. How long has the king been asking Esther what she wanted? Never. Just, just yesterday. She said, what did you want? He said, come to a party. She said, what did you want? She can't go, it's But what's Dvar HaMelech? Dvar HaMelech is something that's the king's thing. What's been the king's thing? What's been the king's fetish? What's been his curiosity? What has he been asking about again and again and again? Esther, where are you from? You bewitch me. You make me crazy. He, she captured his imagination, but what's your background? And the Gemara tells us Esther had an unusual complexion. She looked like this olive green. There was something strange about her. Echashesh couldn't put his finger on it. And he kept asking, and she refused to say. She says, So now she's put like a, an extra curiosity in. Now, now the king really wants to come back because he's going to get the answer to his questions, his off-asked question is finally going to get answered. And of course, you know, one could also argue that this way Esther didn't tell any untruth. That's what she said. So I'm going to tell you which, who my people is. Happens to be that's the question that I have, that the request, my petition, is linked to who my people are. Mm-hmm. But she didn't lead him on. That's exactly, that's exactly what, what, what he was asking. But here she made it Dvar HaMelech, made it the king's thing. 
So from Rashi's perspective, it's not just a casual, oh, you want the answer to the question? Come tomorrow. She says, tomorrow's the big day. Tomorrow, finally, we're going to get, I'm going to tell you what you always wanted to know. Let's go back to the beginning of the, of the verse now, even though we've discussed a little bit the conclusion of this request. Esther says, the, Melech, the king says to Esther, what is your request? And it will be given to you. And what is your petition? Or what is it that your wishes? And it's going to be, going to be given to you. So we have an ask and a request, or a request and a petition. And Achashverosh is very, very specific, very particular about this. Because you'll notice, he says, your, your ask will be given to you. Your request, now all of a sudden he, in, he inserts, he starts talking about half the kingdom, and he says it will be done. Why does he do that? It's like, if Esther didn't ask for half the kingdom, why would you offer it? <laughs> like, why are you looking for trouble for? And Esther says, it's a whole like my request, my petition. You really want to know? Oh, you know, if it's good for you and you like it, tomorrow I'll give Lassi says I'll I'll allow the king the opportunity to give me what I asked for. to do what I'm requesting. Three times. Three times in two verses. A redundancy, actually, th- pardon me, three times the three verses. A redundancy that's seemingly unnecessary. And Esther like repeats it. Sheilasi, bakashasi. And then she goes back to his words. You said, Sheilasi, vinasin. She says, I'll tell you what I want. I, and, and then you'll losses, so you could be able to give it. And then I'll tell you, bakashasi, so that you should be able, losses, to do what I asked for. So, so strange. The words almost scream off the page, Darsheni, ask the question, what's going on here? So firstly, why did Achashverosh even bother asking, what do you want, Esther? Esther came, he says, what do you want? She said, I want you to come to a party. How did Achashverosh notice any other requests? Achashverosh, Esther wanted a party, he got a party. That's called getting off cheap. <laughs> He, he was offering half the kingdom. All she asked for was a party. Okay, fine. You happy, Esther? What, which, that's what any typical husband would say. Yeah, your wife asked for something, he says, you happy now? She's happy, thank God, that's it. Right to give her. Why did he bother asking that? So, the thing is, that we have this Mishtehayayim. And the Cheshverosh understood that the Mishtehayayim is not an accident, that Esther is plying them with wine. And the nature of, uh, you know, drinking wine, everybody's feeling good. And, and Achashverosh offers Esther to drink some wine. She's not drinking. She's very pale. Now, of course, that's because she's fasting. It's the third day of the fast. He says to Esther, um, why, don't you, why don't you eat anything? Why, why don't you have some wine? So the Mepharshim say, the Sefer called Yosef Lakach and others, Achashverosh noticed something's not right here. And he thought to himself, there's no way that the whole request that she had was to come to a party that she's not even going to eat anything at. She was feeling social. Mm, not really. And then Achashverosh started to think further, like the Medrash Lekertev says. She asked, he asked himself, why would Esther risk her life to ask me to come to a party and she's not even in the mood of a party? 
something doesn't make sense here. Remember, Achashverosh is nobody's fool. He may have been a crazy guy, but he was a very, very wily, smart, conniving fellow. He said, something's wrong here. He said, why should I leave it hanging? He got really curious. He said, okay, Esther, what's up? What do you want? Why is this that? What, 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 what are you asking for? It can't be. He reasoned in his mind, there's no way all she wanted was this party, especially since she's not eating at all. She certainly wouldn't have come empty-handed and certainly wouldn't have risked her life. This is the key. The key is, as the Shloim Esther says in his commentary, she risked her life. For what? And Achashverosh was planning to kill her, actually. <laughs> that was like for heavenly intervention that he suddenly stretched his force with the scepter. He said, okay, fine. It didn't end the way I wanted. And I, don't, I don't even know why. I said yes. But for sure, there's something deeper. There's something that's going on. So what might it be? So what do people ask of a king? What do they ask? Favors. Favors. What kind of favors? Wealth, health. Wealth and health. I'm going to stop you right there. Wealth, health. Property is already going into wealth. Mm-hmm. Wealth and health, exactly what somebody would ask from somebody in power. There's two things that you could ask somebody in power. Either you're looking for some kind of financial assistance, whether it's a gift, whether it's a payback, whether it's property, whatever. Something that has to do with parnasa, Or what, what else is the king responsible for? Pardon. Pardon is life. If somebody's in prison or somebody's slated to be killed. This, see, every government, his first duty, first responsibility is national defense. That's why even though George Washington refused to allow the concept of a monarch in the 13 United States, which, as they were called then, 13 states of America, the United Colonies, he didn't want to have a king because he said, look what happened with King George. And even if he says, if I could trust myself that power won't corrupt me, what will happen to whoever replaces him? So we're going to have a democracy, we're going to have this, uh, an election. He used all kinds of ways, Washington, in order to make sure there'd be a balance of power. I specifically used the American model, not the Canadian model, because we basically are modeled after the British model, which was a monarchy. But here, George Washington, for the first time in modern history, departed from the monarchical system. So we're not having a monarchical system at all. No way. Call it a president. President. But... Unlike in Canada, for example, where the prime minister is just part of the leader of the ruling party, the president has what's called an executive branch of government. The executive branch of government is parlayed or offset by the House, the House of Congress, which is called the legislative branch of government. Legislative branch of government is the lawmakers, the people who vote, people who have voted in, which gives individual states representation and individual districts representation. Because the United States, you have a House of Congress, which includes the Congress, which is district-based, and the Senate, which is always going to have two senators from every one of the states. And then, this is further offset by a judicial branch of government. So you have three branches of government, which are oftentimes not exactly on the same page, and sometimes not even on the same book. (laughs) And they're somehow going to have a tug-of-war, and this will keep what he he, uh, feared was absolute power at bay. So you have what's called a balance of power. And yet, what is the official mandate of the President of the United States, despite the fact that he is not a monarch and he has no absolute power? What's his official title? Commander-in-Chief. Why? Because the first mandate of any government is to protect the material welfare of its citizens. That is the first mandate of any government. If your citizens are being killed, 
you have a moral duty as their government to defend them. It's not possible any other way. What's the second duty that a government has? Shelter is a part of Parnassah. Right? You have food and you have shelter. So in other words, to provide the needs, which ultimately is rooted in economic prosperity. Unless you have communism, which claims to provide for everybody and then it provides for nobody except the people who are members of the party. So prosperity. You need to have prosperity, and capitalism works most of the time. The best system... In the, in, of the uh, best imperfect system we have, most perfect imperfect system, so we have capitalism. We have prosperity. What's the job of a government to do? To deliver economic success. And people should prosper. So if somebody comes to a king, what was, what's he going to want from him? What, what are the real two mandates of the king? By the way, all, everything we have dovetails into those, one of those two. National defense is, 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 is about policing, is about a justice system. It's, it's all about security. Safety and security. And the other thing is prosperity. People should be taken care of. Economic prosperity. Healthcare is, is also included in that. There's no money. You can't have healthcare. You can't have a hospital. It's all inclu- it's, it really all boils down. These are the two basic. It's like life and the ability to keep, stay, stay alive. Like, uh, oh, I don't, I, when people, are people killed? They want the people to be able to enjoy life, to, 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 to make the most of life. So what could you ask of a king? You could ask one or the other. So therefore, Ahasuerus says to Esther, he says to, okay, Esther, What's up, what's up here? What is your bakasha? Are you asking a, 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 a request? Is it somebody's life in danger? Or is it money? <laughs> and that's how the Mepharshim, quoted by the Ma'am lawyers, that's how they divide the two requests here. He says, he said to, uh, to Esther, what's your request? Is it, is it money? You need money? Haman's here. He's got the national purse. What's the problem? Any money you need, you need something? Done. Yenasalach, I'm given to you. Is there, is there a, a question of life? A question of survival? A question of security? The seyas will be done. Well, you need somebody's pardon, somebody to somebody's uh, sentence to be stayed. What do you need? What do you need? It will be done. And that's already, when we talk about national defense, when we talk about lives at stake, that's already a governmental thing. So he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And Esther responds by saying, basically, yeah, I do have She'ilasi and I have Bakashasi. I have both. I'm asking for, what's she asking for ultimately? For the lives of her people to be spared. But she knows that Haman also gave a lot of money. So she's asking the king to overlook all the money that was given. She actually is asking for both of those things. And so she says, if the king would like, so then tomorrow come back for another meal. Now, the, the uh, Vilna Gorn has a different approach here. He says that refer to either personal requests or requests on behalf of somebody else. So is something you need. is something you ask on behalf of somebody else. And that says the, the Vilna Gorn is how we understand the Vinasinlach. He says, you missing something, Esther? You need something personally? You, no problem. Vinas and lach will be given to you. You need something, be given to you. And then, bakashosech, there's a petition, something you requested for somebody else. So the Viseas, it will be done. That's not for you, that's for somebody else. So the Vilnagon's way of explaining it really kind of 
fits very nicely with the words of Yunasin and Viseos. And what does Esther respond? Esther says, She'elosi, Lase is chosen to give me my request. I have a request. I want you to give me my request. And Lase is to do, Bakashosi, my petition. What I'm, what I'm asking for others. Do for others. The Ma'am Loyes follows a path that he has embarked on previously. If you'll remember, going back a couple of classes, we talked about Achashver saying, Ad Chatsi HaMalchus meant, not based on English. No base of she says. Whatever you want, but no base of Why? Because Achashverosh believed that the rising sun of his Persian empire could be eclipsed by the re-rising of the Jewish sun. He said, if they, if they rise again, Israel rises again, I'm doomed. He wasn't wrong. And he said, the base of Migdash, that will be the sign. Which is why he shut down the building of the base of Migdash. And according to one Medrash, half his country seceded when he allowed them to rebuild the base of Migdash in protest. And he was left with only 127 provinces now. Because the anti-Semitism was rampant. The whole world hated us. They didn't even know why they hated us. They just hated us. Jew, Jew, Jerusalem can't be Jewish. Nothing has changed, by the way. Nothing has changed. Now you have a, a Moshe Bekipa, most powerful man in the world. What is this? Jerusalem is Jewish. What is the whole world saying? We're going to secede. We have nothing to do with you. Hopefully he stands strong. So he said to Esther, Ad chatzi ha-malchus. Whatever you want. Just don't tell me those pesky Jews got to you and asking about the Beis HaMikdash. If it's about that sanctuary thing, about Jerusalem, forget it. No Jerusalem. Other than Jerusalem, no problem. Whatever you want. So, here's the interesting thing, says the Ma'am Ma'am uses the words, Piv Hichshilei. His mouth made him stumble. Because what he said is, Ad Chatzi HaMalchus Viseos. Half the kingdom will be done. And it was done. By who? By Daryovish, by Darius II, who was the son of Queen Esther and Achashverosh. Mm-hmm. He actually does give permission for the Beis HaMikdash to be rebuilt, and Yerushalayim rises again. And, and here's how the Ma'am puts it. There's an expression in the Gemara. It says, Ad v'loyad b'chlal, or Ad v'ad b'chlal. Which means, when you say half, did you mean up to half, or did you mean 51%? More than half. So Achashver said, 49%. 49. <laughs> Up to half. And then he said, Ad You'll be giving the full half. The full half would mean share power now. Jerusalem rises again. Remember, Achashver made his party only after he was convinced that the prophecy had not materialized. That the Jewish people would not rise again, as the Gemara Meseches Megillah tells us, that he made this whole calculation a miscalculation. He wasn't the first one to miscalculate, right? Because the, the first Galut, the Galut of Babel, was staged. First, the king was exiled. Then another king rose and he started to do his own thing, and Nebuchadnezzar came back and he gouges Alzheimer and he kills that king. And then he, he exiles all of the nobility and all of the, those who were able and capable, the leadership. And then only when the Beis HaMiglis was destroyed was it complete. But Jerusalem was already an empty shell. It had been emptied of its monarchy, emptied of its, of its, of, of its ministry, emptied of anybody who was able to lead Jewish people already was living in Babel, including most of the major prophets. So, so Belshazzar makes the mistake. It's from the original expulsion. And what happens on the night of his party? He's destroyed. He's destroyed. Achashverosh makes the mistake of thinking... It's from when Sidkiyo is killed and Israel is in Yerushalayim becomes an empty shell. And he isn't destroyed. He was a little nervous about this. 
I said, ah, I succeeded. I made it. The prophecy has been put to lie. He came out prancing around in the Kohen Gadol's clothes as if to mock the Jewish people. It's a finished, done deal. And now he says, I have no way I can let the base of get built again. But Esther comes back, and Pivich Shiloh says the Mamla is, he said, up to half the kingdom, but really he meant half the kingdom, he would end up, his empire would end up overseeing and supporting the reconstruction of the Beis HaMikdash, which is exactly what happened. Another interesting uh, twist on this is uh, the Ur Chadash says, Achashverosh couldn't really give Esther more than 49%, because his whole edict had been that the man's got to be in charge. That was his edict. Of course, the, most of the people living in, in his empire at the time, they said, what a, what, a, what a ridiculous thing. What is he saying? Of course, it goes without saying the man's in charge. That's, that was the world in those days. But nonetheless, Ahasuerus said, I made a policy that the man's got to have, he's got to be in charge. He's gotta, <laughs> how can I give him more than 49%? That, that would be a violation of my own edict, I, I, and I can't do that. So at any rate, this is the, some of the reasons behind this or Actually, the Chadash also says, if, if I give you more than 40 51%, I give you 50%, I'm no longer in charge. You're an equal partner. This way I have veto power. I can override you. I still own 51% of the stocks. Okay. So he says to Esther, I can't, I can't go beyond that. Esther responds, and she says, She'elasi ubakashasi. So the Targum Sheni, says, what was Esther thinking? Another party? You just got everything you wanted. And he drank wine. And he's in a good mood. And he asked you. You didn't even have to ask. Like Esther probably thought she'd get him a little intoxicated and happy and then make the regret. No. He asked her. He says, what do you want? You name it, I'll do it. It's done. Just tell me what it is. And again, Esther like drops the ball. What's, what's going on here? Why did she ask? Go ahead. Make the request. So the Targum says there were three things that Esther was thinking. Number one, if you'll remember, we learned that Hasoch, who according to some opinions is Daniel, was the go-between of Esther and Mordechai. And Haman, who had his whole organization, his whole private little organization going on, which included espionage agents and hitmen, he saw Hasoch going back and forth from the queen to Mordechai as a parliamentarian. As a parliamentarian, I guess his schedule was public knowledge, like today. So everybody knew what he saw. Hasach is coming to Mordechai, leaving from Mordechai. Hasach is coming to the queen. He had informants. They were watching very carefully. He had his own shadow government going on. So he was watching this. And what did he do? He had him assassinated. Hasach was rubbed out. This sounds very much like some of the stuff that people say is going on in the United States today. Shadow government, people being assassinated, rubbed out. So Esther said, if I will leave Haman to his own devices now, who knows? I'm the next person to be assassinated. Who knows? Who knows where this goes? So she says, I got to do whatever possible to get Haman's uh, on my side, to uproot the hatred from his heart. He hates Mordechai, I know, but I, I need to have impunity to be able to do what I have to do. Number one. Number two, says the Targum, she wanted to further drive a wedge between these two best buddies, Achashverosh and Haman. And how would she do so? By inciting jealousy. Remember, Achashverosh is a very thin-skinned guy. 
He was always looking over his shoulder, afraid of a shadow. As the British saying goes, the head upon which the crown doth lie, lies uneasy. Achashverosh knew this. In the ancient world, it was very, very common that kings were deposed, coups were staged. And Achashverosh probably knew that Haman has his own little shadow government going on. And Achashverosh probably was already, had, had, might have had some concern. So Esther wants to exacerbate these feelings. And she wants to make them jealous. And that's what the Targum says something very interesting, which we'll discuss in a moment. When Esther invited Achashverosh to the first party, what did she say? She said, look in the end of verse 4, El hamishta asher asiti lo. What does lo mean? Him. Who's the him? Achashverosh. What was Haman doing then? He was a tagalog. Now, take a look in verse 8. What does Esther speak of about the party? El hamishta. She invites the king and Haman el hamishta to the feast. Aselahem. That is made for them. Ah. So before it was Fachashverosh and Haman was just tagging along. Now all of a sudden, Haman became an equal partner. Achashverosh has got to be thinking, what in heaven is going on over here? I mean, I mean, like, why is this guy, like, she makes parties for him now? Him as a tag along, I can handle. But now it's equal footing? Of course, Esther's plans work like a charm. Haman does do some, he makes some very big mistakes. And Achashverosh is jealous. And he is wondering what's going on here. Reason number three, and this is reminiscent of some of the Gemara's, the Gemara's reasons we talked about last week. Esther says, the children of Israel, they're looking at me. Who are they relying on? Esther will save us. He sa she says, that's not good. So I'm going to invite Haman again. And now we'll see that Esther invited Haman once. And now they'll see Esther invited Haman a second time. And they'll say, one second. The first time we thought Esther's inviting Haman, maybe that's part of a plan. But now there's another party going on, which I guess means that the Jewish people are monitoring the situation very carefully too, and they would know. And she says, when they see Haman getting invited a second time, what's the, what are they going to think? Uh-oh. She's, she's friends with him. She's a turncoat, double agent. She's just trying to save her own skin, and she's turning it back on her people. So if they do that, who will they look to then? Hashem. And that's what Esther wanted. Esther said, in order for me to be able to succeed, I need their prayers. But they're not praying anymore. Because they think, oh, Esther's got it covered. So she wanted to make sure that they didn't think she had it covered so that they would do the best they could. And as a result, they would be praying and Hashem would be blessing. So these are the three reasons that Targum Sheni brings down as to why... Esther might have invited Haman to the second party. We know why he invited him to the first party. Why invite him to the second party? It would seem, ostensibly, that if she wants to make this private request of the king, it would be better in private. Why have Haman there? So some of the 15 reasons we brought down last week no longer apply. But there still are some reasons that apply, so we're down to three reasons now, three reasons that essentially clarify the strategy of Esther. And she's like, drinks are on me. Just come back again. That's all I want. Now, the Mamleya says, Esther knows this. She knows the king may get really jealous and upset. So she has to balance things very carefully because if he gets jealous and angry at Haman, it might easily boomerang back onto Esther. 
So she says, Im HaLamelech Toiv, if it's good for the king. She's petting his ego. It's good for the king. It's all about the king, you know. Im if I find favor. So it's all about me finding favor. That's all, that's all I seek, says Esther. I just want to find favor in the king's eyes. I'm not trying to pull any shenanigans. Im HaLamelech Toiv, if it's good for the king. But then she goes ahead and invites Haman. And it's Esther So she's covering her tracks, if you will, or covering her back by saying these words, starting off with these words, but then she finishes off, which I make for them. And in that way, hoping to incite a certain jealousy. And, and this way, Haman would not have a choice. Haman would have to be there, and Esther would have to do what was necessary. Now, there's a very interesting mimer from the Rebbe where he talks about this business of Haman getting invited. And then Esther doesn't reveal her intentions, doesn't make the ask, invites Haman a second time. So based on a mimer of the Alter Rebbe, the Rebbe explains and amplifies and clarifies this idea that's, that we see in the Medrash, in the, in the Targum Sheni, of creating this jealousy, inciting jealousy between Ahasuerus and Haman, like a conquer and divide kind of approach, strategy. So, so the Rebbe suggests in this mimer that Esther was trying to raise Haman. Because when somebody's raised to a higher level, along with that higher position comes greater expectation. When somebody is on a, occupies a low level of responsibility, so when they drop the ball, not that much is expected of them. But when somebody's raised to a position or a, 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 a level of great responsibility, and then they don't perform, then heads roll. So the higher you are, the greater your position, the bigger your responsibility, the greater the fall. Esther is trying to create a situation where Haman isn't just demoted from being prime minister. She needs him hanging. She needs him finished. So she's doing everything she could to raise him higher. And then if he's raised so high, he will fall so low. This is the strategy. And that's the idea of the jealousy that goes along. So in other words... In order to, before she incriminates Haman in the eyes of the king, she wants to raise him to the level that he is equal to the king, as we just pointed out. But first, it's the mishte asher loy asisi loy that I made for him, and now Haman has risen to the point where he doesn't just accompany the king to the king's party. Now it's the king and Haman's party. Now they're in this together, and because of this. What, and this is what was achieved by the second party, which wasn't achieved by the first. Had, had, had Esther just asked them f that way the first time, it wouldn't have had its desired effect. This is like, a, like slow. It's a progression. First, Haman gets invited to Ahasuerus' party. And then, Haman is further raised by the queen, and it's their party. So now that Haman and the king are, so to speak, on equal footing, and then, when, when Haman is raised to such a degree, the fall will be all the more powerful and profound. This is how, this is how Esther's plans it out. Now, the, the, uh, the interesting thing about, about the, this, this, this whole way that, that, that Esther uh, kind of choreographed things is inasmuch as Esther talks about their party, she never indicates for a moment that she wants something from Haman. It was always what she wanted from the king. So Haman, inasmuch as the party was going to be about him, it was, he was never really the subject here. Ahasuerus always remains the subject. So Ahasuerus can't pass the buck and say, oh, that, 
speak to Haman. Because the Mamalaya says, he says, oh, you have financial concerns? Speak to Haman. He's a prime minister. He's in charge of the national budget. He'll take care. No, no, no. She never says that. She never for a moment says, I have a request. She says, a request of you always. And, I, and, and therefore she emphasizes, She'elasi ubakashasi, the king, before saying, She'elasi ubakashasi, in verse 8, she says, If I find favor in the king's eyes. And which Esther demonstrates her loyalty, but she also demonstrates that this is all about the king be granting the wish. Don't send me somewhere else. Don't send me to a different, oh, this, uh, speak to the parliamentary secretary. They'll look after that for you. If it's good for the king, law says to give. In other words, Esther emphasizes that despite all the seeming equality, what she really wants is the king's giving. Only the king can do this. So she puts all the responsibility, all the onus on him. She set him up as well. And Lasses Bakashasi. The Lasses, a Lasses says she Lasses, the Lasses, not the Seos. Achashver says, you name it, it'll get done. No, she doesn't say it'll get done. She says, Lasses, you should give. And then the Lasses says Bakashasi. You should do. Not it should get done. I don't want it to get done. I want you to do it. And after Esther puts the entire onus on Achashverosh, in as much as she's equating Haman, and she says this is about you, you need to do this, you need to make it happen. She says, so uh, what I'm really asking for is Yahweh HaMelech V'Haman. So Haman and the king should come together. And tomorrow I will do Kedvar HaMelech. So now, the trap, Haman was not only brought into the trap, the trap has been fully set. And at this point, Esther is going for broke. There are no second chances here. So this is, everything is, has been set up. And I'll, I'll conclude with a very interesting vart from the Ibn Ezra. He says, why didn't Esther just pull the trigger? Why did she keep delaying this? She delayed it and delayed it until like you couldn't delay it anymore. So the Ibn Ezra says, Lafidaiti, it seems to me, Esther delayed speaking on the first day, even though seemingly everything was in place. She didn't see Hashem doing anything. She was waiting for a sign. She wanted to see that the prayers are being answered. She wanted to know that the trajectory has started to be reversed. And what happens after this party? Mordechai is raised. And when she sees Mordechai raised to greatness on the horse, mm-hmm. and Haman leading, Esther said, now I know it's good. Now I see the sign. Now I know that Hashem favors my efforts and I'll be successful. And the amazing thing this leaves us with is Esther's humility. She did not for a moment allow her power and position to get to her head. Not for a moment did she say, you know, I'm Mordechai makes the request. And what could Esther say? Okay, leave it with me. I'll take care of it. Esther said, go back and daven. She never said, I'll take care of this. She said, this is beyond me. It's all in Hashem's hands. And actually the onus is on you. You need to go and pray. And part of what she does by inviting Haman is, so they, they should pray. Don't rely on me, she says. Never once did Esther say, Esther's got you covered. Esther, Esther's, on, and Esther's in charge. Relax, everybody. She says, it's in Hashem's hands. Everything is in Hashem's hands. What a powerful lesson for us. Esther's humility, Esther's reliance on Hashem, doing her best, risking her life, marshalling every ounce of ingenuity and creativity and creating the best perfect scenario, the perfect storm to be able to make her request. 
But success, that's beyond Hashem. And this is an incredible lesson which Esther shows us as we make our efforts to try to do good things, try to combat evil, try to ensure the protection, the survival, the triumph of Am Yisrael. It's never ever about you. That doesn't exonerate you. You've got to do your everything to the end. You've got to risk your life. But remember at all times that ultimately we need and only when Esther sees that Hashem has actually begun to respond, she says, okay, now I know. Now I know I can write the check, this money in the account, as the Rebbe once metaphorized with regard to the story of Purim. Otherwise, it's a, it's, a, it's a check written, it'll bounce. I need to know the prayers have been answered. Once I know the prayers are answered, once I see a sign that Hashem has begun, everything is going to work out. And amazingly, there was another woman who was almost, almost as smart, Haman's wife. She says to Haman, uh-oh, she says, if this Mordechai is Jewish and you started to fall, once you start falling... It doesn't end. She understood very well. The sign was a very clear sign. It didn't require a prophetess to know it. Anybody who had eyes wide open could see the sign, and that's when Esther knew she can make her move. And she does, as we will continue to learn, Bezat Hashem, in the weeks ahead. So was that the night that the king could not sleep? No. Well, soon. That's after. Um, Hashim spoke to Moses and she spoke to him. Yeah. But he didn't actually speak to her. That's correct. And Never she spoke knew to him. It's, like, it's beyond. Right. Well, see, when you learn the story of the Megillah, I think the person you get, walk away most amazed by is Esther. She's the least appreciated. Even though we call it Megillah's Esther. We, we talk about her beauty. Okay, she was beauty. She, had a, she got attracted. She had feminine attraction. She was a brilliant woman. She was, she was a brilliant strategist. And she was so righteous, had so much self-discipline. Like, she was an extraordinary person. Really one of the greatest people of all time. And a, and a tragic hero, because when the Jewish people left and everything was fine, she was stuck with this, with this bozo yeah, yeah. the rest of her life. How many kids did they have? One child. Just yeah, and she didn't have Yiddish anachas. That child allowed the base of English to be built, but he never recognized his Jewishness. He didn't have a bar mitzvah. He didn't put on film. So to the best of our knowledge, Jerusalem. no, he, he remained the Persian king. Darius, Dariavish. There was there was a, Darius the first is a Mede from from Media, the king of Media. Achashverosh named his son a royal name, and he was Darius the second. He was the Persian Darius. You'll find out. 